It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, a lack of power and a lack of influence. Shocking revelations from the Mayor of London who tells the COVID inquiry he was kept in the dark over the seriousness of the pandemic in the early stages. Home Secretary James Cleverly is facing MPs over the future of the Rwanda plan and we caused an uproar after telling the Times, believe it or not, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all. Uh, and 100,000 people marched in solidarity with the Jewish community in the capital, but the number of anti-Semitic incidents increases across the country. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Tonight, I'm going to save the country about 100 million quid. How? Very easy. Cancel the rest of the COVID inquiry now. This bloated carnival of self-interest is a platform for grandstanding politicians, inexpert experts and bitter and twisted former Downing Street advisers, all of whom are trying to justify the unjustifiable. The only useful things we've learned are these. One, the government was ill-prepared. Two, the lockdowns were a massive mistake. And three, Dominic Cummings seems to think everyone's a complete and utter bastard. There isn't one person in Britain who doesn't know all this already. So why do we need another 1,000 days of so-called evidence. Today, for instance, Mayor of London Sadiq Khan's main evidence was, wait for it, he'd been excluded from COBRA meetings. Didums. Paul Sadiq went on to moan that he lacked power and influence during the crisis. All I'll say is, thank God he was barred from the meetings in light of the daily chaos he causes in London. We're told the inquiry will last until 2026, with a possible further four years of sober reflection by the inquiry judge. What? Eight years to tell us what we already know, Meanwhile, around 100 lawyers charging a minimum of £220 an hour are coining it in like drunken lottery winners. If the government wants to do anything useful, it should cancel the inquiry right now and share the 100 million quid it will save with the families of the 230,000 victims. Another running sore is the rolling chaos around immigration. For years, the country has demanded the government halts the tide. For years, the government has promised action. For years, mass immigration has continued unchecked. Now the Tory party is in danger of being torn apart. Reform UK has been quietly tapping up right-wingers in a bid to get them to defect. 
And Rishi Sunak bleats that a vote for reform is a vote for Labour. But when real people continue to be ignored by the establishment over and over again, strange things can happen. Can anyone remember Brexit? Now, my favourite news of the day, Guardian Easter food critic Grace Dent has exited I'm a Celeb, a nation weeps. This sneering hatchet-faced snob once branded the ITV show a puerile venture into starving, televised constipation and animal cruelty. But in true Guardian style, i.e. being a total hypocrite, Al Gracie grabbed ITV's cash before he could say unprincipled fame whore. Now, after contributing the square root of sweet F.A. to the show, frankly, Nigel Farage's backside has been more animated. Grace has fled the jungle. Now we can look forward to 3,000 words of deadly dense whining revisionism in The Guardian about her TV exploitation hell. But at least the jungle cockroaches have finally fought a break. Let's get it on. Now, don't forget, you can get in touch with us on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost you uh, the national rate. But now returning to the Independent Republic to kick things off this Monday is none other than columnist for the Mail on Sunday, Mr Peter Hitchens. Good Peter, evening. A very good evening to you and welcome. Um, I don't know about you, but I finally just come to the conclusion that this whole COVID inquiry is a complete waste of money, complete waste of time. It's now, it now exists purely for comedy value. Uh, with Mrs. Khan and, and Burnham today. We're going to get Matt Hancock towards the end of the week. We're going to get Michael Gove, I think, tomorrow. I mean, what's the point? It's worse than you say, though. It's worse than pointless because I think... <laughs> no, it will, it will eventually come up with the answer, which I predicted since the moment it was set up, will say that we did not lock down hard enough or something yes. because it's programmed to do so. Right. It's complete... Its mind is totally closed mm. to the real problem, which was that nobody knew what they were doing or did anything remotely approaching a cost-benefit right. analysis, and they weren't interested in it. They're not interested in it now. Uh, the, 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 the way in which they treated Carl Hennigan, uh, one of the few scientists yeah. who had the courage to stand out and say this, this, this might all be a mistake, uh, was shocking and remains shocking, and anybody who's interested can look it up in The Spectator magazine, his account of the way he was treated. Not at all, seriously. They have not got any intention of actually looking into the real problem, should we have shut down the country at all? And that is simply not on their agenda. And the only other conclusion one can draw from it is almost so many young, intelligent people will be looking at and thinking, when I grow up, I want to be a public inquiry lawyer. Because yes, because that's where the so money is. So much money is. Yeah. And, and, and it used to be you, commercial law, didn't it? Where, it used to I, be... can, can I change the subject a bit? Yeah, I, please. I, I, I saw a very different uh, display of the law uh, the week before last in the High Court uh, of this very curious case of the of the blogger Graham Phillips. Oh, yes. Now, this is extraordinary. I don't like Mr Phillips at all, and I don't like what he does, but he he's, he's basically he's very pro-Russian, and you can look up, indeed, in things that I've written, accounts of, of stuff that he's done, which yes. is strongly Yes, I've seen you refer to them. But the, the point is that what the government did was that they sanctioned him. Now, you think the government sanctions people all the time, and it does. But they're people like Syrian regional military commanders, uh, Russian regional governors, mm. maybe occasionally people with dual British and, and some other nationality. They have never sanctioned anybody who only has British nationality. Mm. And what happens to Mr Phillips as a result of this is that he cannot pay his bills, he cannot be paid, he becomes an unperson. He's basically banned. Right. And so does he not have a bank account? Well, he, no, he, he can have it, but he can't access it. He, right. can't, he can't pay his council tax. He can possibly be allowed to do these things if he applies for special permission, but he, I think, quite reasonably refuses to apply for permission yeah. to live. Right. And, and, and there he is. This very heavy punishment has been imposed on him without any court hearing mm. at all, 
by the Foreign Office. Yeah. And amazingly, I, I've tried to get up some sort of opposition to it because it, it, free, you're only ever defending free speech if it makes you unpopular. Yeah. If you defend free speech that everybody likes, that's not defending free speech. I've tried to get people interested in this. And finally, great breakthrough, uh, a barrister with the name of Joshua Hitchens, who is not related to me, okay. took up the case right. pro bono for yeah. nothing and, and, and went to court on behalf of Mr Phillips and put up an extremely good case for him. I, it, I, it's, it's not for me to say uh, whether he won or lost. The government deployed a KC and three other Whig barristers and a whole platoon of other, uh, of, of other assistants against right. him. And it was heard in the High Court over two days, and I was there for the whole time. Fascinating business. Uh, and I think that it would be a very, very good thing if, if, if Joshua Hitchens wins his case. Yes. Because I, so I, they haven't decided it, Because yet. If, they can, if the government can sanction someone mm. for saying something it doesn't like about foreign policy mm. and, and annoying a country which the government currently likes, then none of us is safe, including me, because I often say disobliging things. Well, you do, as about do I. The Ukraine and yeah. about, uh, about, about Ukraine and about Saudi Arabia or indeed about the United States of America. And if that's going to become an excuse for the government to punish me without trial, then that has to be prevented, it seems. Yeah, it does. Well, it brings me on to what happened at the weekend with Tommy Robinson being arrested by the police in London. Now, I'm like you uh, with, with, with your, uh, your case that you're talking about. I'm no fan of Tommy Robinson's. In fact, you know, he and I have had fallings out uh, in various ways on social media over the course of years. But the way that his case kind of if unfolded over the weekend, where he was uh, forcibly removed by an awfully large number of police officers. Hadn't he been given a, 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 some sort of lawful order to stay away? They gave him a dispersal order when he was there, as far as I understand it. Um, my understanding is that he was asked not to turn up. The organisers of the march said they didn't want him there. Yeah. But nevertheless, as he's I, My sympathies for, 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 for Mr Yaxley Lennon, as I, I think, you know, know Tommy, what Tommy Robinson yes. is. It's the name of a football hooligan after whom he just yes. named himself. Right. Which is an indication of what we're dealing with here. Yes, of course. But I, I, I'm not sure it's the same things. Where I'm not saying it's, it's the same thing. It's not an expression of a... Of opinion, no. Here is 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 behaviour. So I won't really go. Well, the only that. reason I'm saying that it should be con con concerning is because he was then removed. Um, he was put in um, overnight, a cell overnight, um, for not adhering to a dispersal order. Yeah. So I don't think they would do with anybody else. Uh, and he's now apparently been banned from entering London or taking part in any kind of protest. All of which seems a little bit to well, play to his to his kind of there, plans. There are elements else. of this. The whole idea of people being banned from places and so forth is 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 worrying. There are yeah. elements of this which 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 are worrying. But I I just have so many reservations about this person that I'm I I, I don't want to get involved in that. No, case. I'm not talking. Or to dilute him. my dilute my efforts on behalf of what I think is a much more important okay. case right. for Graham Phillips by getting mixed up in it. OK. Well, we'll talk some more about the COVID inquiry coming up. We'll talk some more probably as well about um, the freedom of speech of many people over yeah. the course of time. But let's talk now about what you wrote at the weekend, Lord Slippery of Tripoli, um, which was a rather nice little... Uh, it's kind of you. It just came to me to... as I was, as yeah, I was no, walking along early one morning. I used to call him Mr Slippery mm. when he was Prime Minister, yeah. uh, which but I, it's the old I, I know bit. for a fact he didn't like. But, but then I thought Lord Slippery... Uh, and then, of course, it's Tripoli. Because it does, Tripoli is the place where he most distinguishes himself in yes. doing the stupidest acts of foreign policy yeah. since Iraq. Mm. And actually possibly even more stupid because it's led directly 
to the gigantic human trafficking crisis across the Mediterranean, yeah. which has thrown Europe into permanent turmoil and was completely unnecessary and solved nothing. He, was, he thought he was overthrowing the despot Gaddafi. Well, he was, but there are worse things than Gaddafi. Yeah. Libya now knows what they are because it's the place is a howling chaos. Yeah of total anarchy in which all kinds of horrible things happen, which are even worse than Gaddafi. Well, that's that is David Cameron's biggest achievement in his entire life. Yeah. He, should be, he, should, he should be barred from being a dog catcher after that, but he, well, he's, he's now foreign secretary. Unfortunately, he's been let loose on the world, and one of his first things was to go to Israel, uh, where he immediately pledged a load of money to Gaza, I think £30 million, to help rebuild it. Now, again, you might say very noble aim, very well, good sure. idea. However... You know, that's our money we're talking about. And we don't know exactly where it's going. It may end up going to Hamas, like an awful lot of aid amazing money Amazing amounts of, amazing amounts of money from both the Middle East and from the European Union and from this country go to Gaza in attempts to try and get it, uh, to, to, to turn it into the highly civilised place it ought to be, mm. which Hamas don't want it to be. And I, one of the Hamas leaders has actually said, we're not interested in housing or hospitals or the well-being no. of people. We're only interested in the war with Israel. And I'm very much afraid there is a danger that any money which goes there uh, might end up in the wrong hands. And I, but you know, what, 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 what can I say? We could have here a debate about, about British foreign policy in the Middle East lasting for six weeks if we yeah. didn't resolve it. But I'm very uh, suspicious about what might happen given the nature of Gaza. So any money sent benevolently there, and there's always the danger. And the United Arab Emirates did a fantastic job a few years ago building some very fine new housing in Gaza, yeah. which badly needs it. And I would imagine that housing has been flattened in the recent weeks. Well, you know, there's some amazing parts of Gaza which do not look anything like the pictures that you see on oh, television. No, no. And many of them have not been flattened yet, so we, we shall see. Before we go uh, just to the first break, we're going to talk more about COVID. I must mention, uh, once again, Behind Bars, uh, because yes. you wrote about it in The Spectator this week. Yes. Um, and I'm saving it, by the way. I haven't watched it, because I figure I'm no. going to watch it during the Christmas period. Of uh, when there's a bit oh, of downtime, well, you, I'm saving myself. For but it. The, the the third and fourth <laughs> episodes are the ones to go for. Uh, is is all I'm saying. You, you won't get much of me in the in the in the first and second. Right. The third and fourth are the ones are absolutely the ones. But it's clearly for. been quite an effective um, sort of method for you to understand a bit more as well about what happens inside these places. Oh, I, I didn't. Not, not much of it surprised me. The, the intensity of it was interesting and the personal and, and, and the personal kind of. I must tell you this anecdote because you know we, we were I think seven minor celebrities and about probably 30 or 40 right. former prisoners. And I didn't know which was which because minor celebrities, as we can see from our right. uh, study. lock of all up. Who are they? <laughs> uh, including me. And I was trudging around the exercise yard with some guy and uh, after a while, the conversation flagged a bit. And I said, well, how, how, how come you ended up in prison? He said, prison? Me? I'm not a prisoner. I'm one of the celebrities. <laughs> and, then, and then with total swift revenge, he said, and who are you? Brilliant. It Absolutely was a great fantastic. moment. It was perfect. Yeah. I won't say who it was. Yeah, there it is. The unkind. Well, we won't absolutely happen. But uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to recommend that even just from reading what you've you've written and from what you've told me so far, obviously worth watching. There. Oh, I, Peter Hitchens. You must many watch people it, yeah. would pay money for Peter Hitchens behind bars. Well, they would too. Know. That's the trouble. I'm not joking. Right, you're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Do not go anywhere because I'll tell you everything that happened at the COVID inquiry today, including why Sadiq Khan thinks the government hearing from him could have saved lives. Back after this.
Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The Mayor of London's been taken to the stand today at the COVID inquiry, and it seems he was just as clueless as the rest of us, or maybe more. Sadiq Khan told lawyers that he was furious at being excluded from key COBRA meetings, arguing that he would have lobbied the Prime Minister to go into lockdown sooner. Of course he would. I've been kept in the dark as the elected Mayor of London, uh, and I felt almost winded in relation to what was happening in London, but also realising there are things we could have done in relation to some of these uh, issues. Some we did, St. Patrick's Day, uh, enhanced cleaning on the underground, others we didn't do. And I was quite clear, um, not, in any way, not in any way to sound um, panic-driven, but I was alarmed by, our, by what I was being told in relation to where we were and where we may go to. Uh, and I, I will never forget that, that sort of feeling of uh, um, uh, lack of power, lack of influence, not knowing what's happening in our city. Yeah, that comes as no surprise, is it? Not knowing what's going on in the city. And lack of power and lack of influence. And lack of power and lack of influence. Yeah. Peter Hitch is still here, of course. We're also joined by Parliamentary Sketch Writer Telegraph, Madeleine Grant. Very good evening to both of you once again. I mean, is there something wrong with me? I just find it very irritating, irritating watching and listening to, to uh, Sadiq Khan just because of the way he talks. Just switch it off. Just, he just, speaks just, in just, a kind of very just, odd way. Just, doesn't just switch it off. But I find this stuff about Cobra so funny. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so dramatic, this community called Cobra, as if you go to strike out. It should yeah. It'd be much better to call it slow worm or grass snake. Yeah. It's just a committee. <laughs> and imagine what it's like down there. Well, they want it to sound like a Marvel <laughs> tale. <laughs> down miles and miles and miles of spiral staircases into this bomb-proof cellar. Yeah. Right. And then they, they have a committee meeting yes. with an agenda and a chairman and, right. and, and minutes in which almost nothing is discussed. It's, it, but COBRA, it and does it sound and so... COBRA is it? not an acronym for something It is. It's Cabinet yeah. Words, Briefing Brumet. Right. Yeah. Which is not very sexy, no, is it? No, sounds better when you call it COBRA. Yeah. But, I mean... I would say at the top of the show, Madeline, that, you know, the best thing we can do now is just stop the COVID inquiry, save 100 million quid, give it to the families of those who, who need it. Because we're, we're now in pantomime territory, aren't we? Oh, my God, yes. We are. We are in... I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me in a way because I remember covering COVID all through while it was happening and the absolute sort of tin-potted dictators that sprung up across the country. Yeah. You know, every regional leader was convinced that they had the answer and if only they had more power, then everything would have been different. And when they did actually have more power, as in Scotland and Wales, yeah. we found that mostly they were just pulling levers for the sake of it to right. differentiate themselves from Westminster. And I think Sadiq Khan's um, little tirade today was, was an absolute classic of that genre. He's basically saying, if only I had been listening yeah. to you know, thousands and tens of thousands of lives might have been saved based on what evidence exactly? I, I mean, it seems right. almost kind of theological at this point. It's, you know, it's angels on pin territory mm. right now, what we're discussing. Mm. Have we, in fact, seen any evidence at all, any lives saved by any of these, uh, no. these things? No, none I at all. I don't think so. And they say it, though. Well, they say it they over say and over it. again, but just, and that is a good way of getting people to believe it. But one of the problems always for me was looking at these figures, and there was some very clever pathologists at the time who said, that the, the way in which COVID supposed deaths were recorded was completely swivelled yeah. and, and not right. That uh, it's never one of the things this inquiry could do would be to look into exactly how COVID deaths were were recorded yeah. and what it meant because there was a big dispute at the time: COVID deaths with or, or, yes. or deaths from. And there still is. Never been resolved. No. And then there was the other thing: what, what had a, we were told that there were these things called infections, which sounded as if the bubonic plague was 
spreading across the country. They were positive tests. Mm. No one... No. The, the teams, I remember, were, were spreading across Leicester, I think it was, going from house to house, testing people. And surprise, surprise, right. they got a lot of positive results right. in Leicester. They've all got it. But it didn't, what it meant was that lots of teams of people had been going around Leicester. It didn't mean and, lots of people yeah. in Leicester were, were ill. Yeah. So well, I mean, there were many people that I knew question. Said, well, I've never had COVID. How do you know? I've never tested myself. <laughs> you might as well say that, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I thought it was interesting in the... Um, from the clip that we just heard, that Sadiq Khan was talking about one of the positive things that he did during the pandemic talking about to mitigate, these. sorry, talking so, uh, about, was to do enhanced cleaning on the tube, i.e. surfaces. Yeah. And it's been known for quite a long time that surfaces played a much lower part than the experts yeah. thought at the time, That's and so it was more of an aerosol-driven right. transmission yeah, well, thing. The tube did need so, a bit of a clean. Well, you know, yeah, it, sure I stopped did, using the tube because the thing that he really did, which was actually not very clever, was that he made them uh, much further apart. So instead of coming every two or three minutes, as we're all used to doing in London on the Jubilee line, which is the one I used, um, they suddenly were seven minutes apart. And, I went there, and so yes. they were constantly rammed with people. You used the tube, it was like Doctor Who, as if the whole world had been killed off and there was nobody there but you. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was quite entertaining if you had that, 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 that sort of mind. But it, it, it really, it, um, it, it, a lot of things... You feel gave. privileged. I had a personal train every morning yeah. from Oxford. Absolutely right. Well, yeah, Andy like, Burnham. like Lenin or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Andy Burnham. Well, no, not like Andy <laughs> he, he similarly... He had a, he had a Rolls Royce with skis. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly to Sadiq Khan feels that he was left out because he knew a lot of people, apparently, uh, who knew some people in Wuhan. That was his area of expertise. Have a look at this. Manchester as a city had uh, a long-standing twinning arrangement with Wuhan. So um, some of the familial connections that our Chinese community had uh, were with that, with, with that area. So I attended uh, two uh, community meetings in January and I think one going into early February when you know the community was in a very high state of alarm and was asking for my help to get PPE through Manchester airports, donations sent over. So I, I really became very aware of just how serious the situation was. It's like people saying, yeah, I used to know this guy um, and he had a shop um, and he had some relatives in another place and that's why I'm an expert. I mean, that's literally the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever heard. It's quite a stretch, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, as long as you didn't copy the Wuhan authorities. Wasn't it in Wuhan where they welded people into their Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they had those that kind of cattle prods that were shaped like that. But I do remember the, people the, back. there was a moment in Manchester, didn't they try and put fencing around student accommodation? They locked them in. Yeah, they, oh. they did, I remember yeah, that. I, because there were people leaning was... out windows begging for food because they couldn't get out. Yeah, that was quite, that was quite weird. But it does show you. There were, a few, right. there were a few kind of high watermarks of absolute lunacy and hysteria that I had forgotten about. And mm. during the COVID inquiry, we've been re-reminded of yeah, these things. Yeah. And it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I think even those of us who are more sceptical, it was not a good time to live through. So you sort of suppress what no. happened in your mind. And then you're reminded that there was once a proposal to kill all the dogs and cats, yes. literally like they did during the bubonic yeah. plague. And it was like, if you, if you suggested that that might not be a good idea, you were some kind of maniac because you didn't care about people dying. Well, that was the and thing. And you were like, seriously? I remember I didn't go, for the first eight weeks, I didn't go to um, see my kids who live in Sussex at the weekends because I was genuinely concerned that I wouldn't get back into London because I thought, so I'm going to meet some maniac on the M25 with some kind of cir you know, circle of steel that's going to say, no, 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 you're not allowed back into London. Well, you, it wasn't clear whether that would, no. would or would not happen. Now, of course... People in, in, in our position would be foolish to risk it anyway, but it, it, it is very, it, it was very strange. But I didn't, 
I thought the whole thing was was mad and stupid and wrong and bad. And once I got used to this and, and knew, for instance, that we would we would shortly go through yes. the most tremendous bout of inflation and, and economic damage, which we're now going through, I knew this. Right. Uh, I, I turned my sense of humour up to maximum and resolved to enjoy it as much as possible just yeah. by laughing at it. Because as I did when I was living in the Soviet Union, it's yeah. the same sort of thing. In mad places, you, you just have to laugh. I, remember I, did, I did enjoy in. your gas mask very much. The oh, gas mask you. was great. I mean, that was a... It was a real it? Polish army gas mask. Have you still got I it? I once rode through <laughs> Kensington Gardens on a, on a Ken Livingston bike wearing it Brilliant. to see what would happen. <laughs> yes. And nobody batted an eyelid. Well, I think because everything was so nutty. I mean, I remember... Um, uh, once going to use the tube for the first time in a while, and there were two police officers on the other side of the gates, right? So I went through, and it was... And I remember getting the Chris Philp, who was the Justice Minister, on to say, you know, what is the actual law here? He didn't know. No. Because as I walked through, one of them said, have you got a mask, sir? And I said, yes, I have, thank you very much. <laughs> and I just kept going, and he sort of shouted after me, you're supposed to be wearing it. Yeah, and I'm thinking, well, I thought, I'll just put it on when I get on the train. Well, I maybe to, I won't. I had to <laughs> smuggle myself into Wales on, in, the, in the lavatory of a train, because once you cross... <laughs> The seven. It was illegal. I remember to, this. Illegal to be on a train without a mask, right. which I wasn't prepared to do. So I could go and give blood right. to the Welsh blood transfusion service, who did not insist that you wore a mask <laughs> while you gave it. Whereas the English. I mean, it's above and did. beyond. This. I did that. Yeah. It is. I did. I, I stayed above in, I stayed in the lavatory on, on Welsh territory. And everybody I know, and I'm not asking for confession time here, man, but everybody I know one. that was sensible was having, you know, dinner parties. Was having, you know. I, I, I can't say who did this, but somebody I know used to go to a pub where he knew the landlord and the pub said, it's only illegal to sell you the drink. If you come here and I give it to you, it's not a problem. Bring your friends. Oh, so there was lots of that stuff going on. Of course there was. But the gas masking, if I may go back to it, there's one occasion, I won't say where or when it was, when I was chided uh, for wearing it by an official who said, you're just trying to frighten people. <laughs> I said, no, that's you. That's brilliant. He's just trying to frighten people. There's a pandemic on, don't you know? What's wrong oh, with you? Oh, that's so good. That's very no fighting. That's the brilliant. Room. Brilliant. Listen, yeah. I wish I could have you both for longer, but I can't. Uh, but, uh, thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. Grant. Brilliant. Uh, absolutely amazing stuff. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Do not change the channel because I'll be taking your calls very soon. But first, we'll bring some updates on the hostages released by Hamas and find out whether the Rwanda scheme is ever going to get off the ground. See you in three. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend the four-day truce in Gaza for a further two days. Hamas said the extension was under the same conditions, which would see 50 Israeli hostages released for 150 Palestinian prisoners. Uh, here to provide us with the very latest is senior reporter at The Sun, Paul Sims. Now, moving on. Sorry, Hello, Paul. Mike. How are you doing? Uh, good to talk to you. Um, it's obviously been very, very tense over the last few days. I think a lot of people were quite relieved in a way that the hostages were exchanged in the way that they were exchanged. There's been a lot, a lot an awful lot of rhetoric on, on both sides. But, but it seems as though they're getting somewhere at least, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen four days now where the hostages have, um, have been released um, according to plan. Um, we've uh, we've seen we've seen the Israelis released each day. In return, the Palestinian prisoners have been released from the prisons within Israel, and um, we, we've we've had a, a couple of hiccups along the way. Um, but um, largely, it's it's held in place, and to a, a greater degree, we've now got the extension of two further days. 
um, which was wonderful news for the families of those Israeli hostages who have yet to be released. Um, in the last hour, we've seen um, another is 11 Israeli hostages released by Hamas. They include nine children, uh, two mothers. Uh, the youngest are three-year-old twins, Emma and Yuli Cuneo. Um, so th their age ranges are three to 18 um, and it, 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 it is welcome news. And hopefully over the next two more days, we'll see 10 more hostages each day released. So a potential for another 20. Um, Israel are keen for the war to, to continue. They're keen to eradicate Hamas, but they're also very keen to get their hostages back. And Hamas equally are very keen for a pause in the hostilities. They want to regroup. Right. And is there anybody... I mean, I know all this is being sort of agreed in Qatar um, in various ways, but is anybody kind of under the impression that Hamas is benefiting more from this than Israel? Because we keep hearing from the Israeli government and their, and their, and their uh, spokesmen and their officials that, you know, we are not, you know, ending our pledge to end the, the, the existence of Hamas. We are still... That is still our military aim. That is still what we're going to do. I think it's, it's, it's finely balanced. If you look at the video footage from Ramallah uh, on the West Bank and you see the Palestinian prisoners being released, um, I, th I think it would probably stick in the claw of the Israelis quite a lot. Um, but they are focusing on the fact that they have um, a large number of their people still held in captivity. The families are desperate for them to, to, to return home. Um, and, and it is heartwarming for those families to see their loved ones coming home. But we must remember that there are still a large number of Israelis who are still being held hostage. And my maths um, says that 69 hostages have so far been released. Of those, 50 of them are Israeli, further 19 are foreign. Um, and in return, uh, you've seen 150 Palestinians go in the opposite direction. But what, what's fascinating is that those Palestinians that are being released, they're being released into the West Bank. They're not going back to Gaza. Yeah. So whilst the civilians of Gaza are suffering on the face of it, it's the Palestinians in the West Bank, in, in Jerusalem, that are, are cheering and, 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 and are celebrating. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in, in terms of the information war, um, it, it looks like, you know, Hamas, if you ask a Palestinian in the West Bank, they will firmly back Hamas. They've won the release of 150 Palestinians. But you've got to remember at the centre of this, the core of this, the human beings that were snatched on October the 7th by Hamas. And Israel has a, a dual role here. They have to get their citizens back. That's, that's absolutely paramount. But then equally, they've got half an eye on the fact that the war must continue because their main priority is to remove Hamas. Yeah. And as long as Hamas have hostages, they have protection, I suppose. Um, which makes you wonder yeah. whether they will ever give them all up. I can't see why they would. Well, no. I, mean, I, mean, I think what they'll probably look at, Mike, is that they've got some soldiers that they are held, holding hostage and they, they will be of, of high value. They will retain those for as long as they possibly can. I think we've spoken recently where we, you know, we've made very clear that of the hostages that they still have, there now is about 170 that remain captive. And of those 179 of them are children. The mm. youngest is just 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Yeah. But you've got to remember that it's not just Hamas holding the, um, the hostages. You've also got the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and various gangs. So whilst Hamas are coordinating this, and they'll be coordinating it with the PIJ, 
there are disparate groups who have these hostages and they also have slightly different demands mm. to Hamas. Yeah, it's a very troubling time, but Paul, appreciate it. Thanks very much for bringing us up to date. Paul Sims there reporting in uh, on the latest news from Israel uh, with the hostage exchange. It now looks as though uh, everything's going to be extended for a couple more days and there'll be better and more prisoner exchanges. But you still have to wonder where it's all going to end, where it's all going to end up. Uh, we'll take your calls on it, of course, coming up uh, a little bit later on. But now, uh, let's talk about Home Secretary James Cleverley, because he's already found himself at the centre of a growing row with his fellow Tories over Rwanda deportation flights. He downplayed the importance of the immigration plan, despite Downing Street saying it was committed to resurrecting it to send channel boat arrivals to East Africa. The new Home Secretary's urged people not to fixate on it, adding that leaving the European Convention on Human Rights would undermine attempts to stop the boats. He's been grilled in the Commons this afternoon, after the latest figures revealed, net migration reached a record high. The people who are being smuggled are seen as just products. They are expendable in the eyes of those people smugglers. We have to do everything we can and we will do to break their business model. I commend the work of my right honourable friend, the Immigration Minister, who has recently been to Bulgaria, where in close cooperation with our international partners in Bulgaria, we have seized boats we have seized engines, we are breaking the business model and we will continue to drive down those illegal, uh, crossing, uh, uh, those illegal small boat crossings until we have stopped the boats. Uh, he's not going to stop them, though. he's just determined to try and stop them. In addition to that, of course, it was revealed today that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak promised to toughen up migration rules under a leadership contest deal uh, with Suella Braverman. The Telegraph says it has seen a copy of a plan struck between the two of them that supposedly includes a pledge to increase the salary migrants would have to earn to enter the UK. Joining me to discuss this ongoing Rwanda rift, because that's what it is, Deputy Research Director at the Centre for Policy Studies, Carl Williams, and human rights lawyer, David Hay. Good evening uh, to both of you. Um, let me start with you, David. I mean, it does seem as though there's a bit of a uh, conflict, shall we say, between um, the aims... Um, and the intentions, it would seem, of the new Home Secretary and Rishi Sunak. You know, he says they're going to go back to court. He says they're going to come up with a new law. They're going to uh, emergency legislate for um, uh, a method and a means by which they can send people to Rwanda. Meanwhile, uh, we've got James Cleverly not saying we're going to stop the boats, but we will sort of try to maybe slow them down a little bit if we possibly can. I mean, it doesn't sound very, it doesn't sound very serious. I mean, good, good, good evening. I mean, it's just when you think it couldn't get any worse, the chaos continues. And, and clearly, you know, James Cleverly hasn't got the memo on, on, on the policy from, from, from Sunak, and, right. from Rishi Sunak. And where, where do you start with this? I mean, it just goes from one bad thing to the next thing. To be honest, though, what he's actually said in terms of the, the, the fact that the Rwanda policy really shouldn't be the be-all and end-all, of the of that, it's not something to fixate on. It's probably a, an honest reflection. It was never about enough numbers. Of course, they said it was about deterrence, but it was never going to be a lot of numbers if it ever got off the off the ground, which is, as we know, it hasn't, and it's unlikely to. Um, but it's an interesting comment when he said it's not the be-all and end-all. So I certainly think it probably could be the be-all and end-all of the Conservative government. <laughs> I mean, if I think I think that's very well put, um, Carl. Let me let me put that to you because it seems as though, um, from what the Telegraph have been saying, that there was some kind of agreement between Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman. She's been saying that it's the legal migration that's the problem, 
uh, all along, albeit that, yes, um, they need to stop the small boats, and yes, that is part of the problem. But the row now is all about the legal migration figures that came out last week that we spoke about. Um, and it seems as though, again, there's promises in one uh, room, and then those promises get broken in the next room. Yeah, I mean, one of the frustrating things about this debate is the way it's so often refracted through personalities and perceived leadership ambitions, rather than the fundamental policy issues we should be focusing on. Yeah, exactly, because at the end of the day, you know, I think everybody has agreed, most sensible people have agreed, that something needs to be done. And yet the only thing that seems to happen, Carl, is that the numbers keep going up. Yes, absolutely. I think one thing we are hearing from some people is that the numbers will naturally come down now, but um, a lot of the rise is because of one-off um, schemes for Ukrainian refugees and people from Hong Kong fleeing the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but actually, if you look at the underlying visa data for the Home Office, which we now have up till September, um, total visas across the worker, health and care, student category are up by 29% year on year. So that's taking out Hong Kong and Ukraine. So the underlying drivers of rising migration are still there, and if anything, they seem to be getting stronger. Yeah. And, and as, as you've said, and we've said in the past before, David, the big part of this as well is the number of dependents that are coming. And one of the things that Sola Bravman was big on is to say that, you know, we must limit that. You can't suddenly say that you can allow 30,000 work visas or 30,000 student visas, and then another 30,000 people come along behind. Well, absolutely, and that's one of the big figures. And and and, and like I said, I mean, that, that, you know, there's been far too much focus in a way, in terms of numbers at least, and, and efforts or lack of effort from the government that's been put into bringing down the illegal migrants. When the real problems are, for instance, overstayers, whether it's student visas, even tourists, work permits, and then work permits as well, and then student visas and the and the and, and the dependents. Um, those need to be tackled. And, you know, now we're seeing, you know, today various kind of battles going on between various different camps in the Tory party, talking about whether the, the minimum salary of, a, of a, someone coming on a work permit should be 26 or 40. You know, this isn't really going to achieve anything other than win votes for whoever wants to leave the Tory party next time. And we're obviously paying the price of that. But that's the other problem, uh, isn't it, Carl? Because we hear all the time uh, that you get organisations in this country uh, willing to hire people. This 40,000 a year figure has come up where, you know, as far as Sula Bravman is concerned, Rishi Sunak promised that he would raise the level of, uh, uh, of salary that somebody would need to get in order to come to work in certain jobs in this country. But we also know there are lots of other organisations who will quite gladly undercut whatever the main a pay deal is for anybody doing all sorts of jobs if you can get cheaper labour in from overseas? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of two related issues here. There's the, the grey economy and the ability of people who have overstayed a visa to slip off into that, and we just lose track of them at the moment. Uh, it's a very poor system. Uh, and then more broadly, with the way the legal migration system is calibrated at the moment, the salary threshold on the main skilled visa route is £26,000 a year. I mean, that's well below the £33,000 median salary in this country. Uh, and secondly, that number has been fairly static for several years now. It's not been linked to inflation. So actually, just sort of the natural policy environment means the barrier has been getting lower and lower. Yeah. So, uh, who, whatever. so who's supposed to handle all of these uh, skilled worker visas? Who's, who's in charge of that, David, legally? 
Well, I think effectively, ultimately, you know, the home rocks, and that's one of the, the, the areas that, that we need to, I think we need to look in. And there have been a lot of people saying that we need to start breaking up the home office into smaller parts so that they're actually effective because they're completely unfit for purpose as far as I'm concerned. They're not doing anything that they really need to do in any of the elements that you look at. Um, you know, it's just, like I said earlier, it's just one thing after another. It's Groundhog Day with absolute fast and chaos in the immigration system. And then, you know, I was reading reports today, whether they're true or not, I don't know, questioning Infosys, obviously, Rishi Sunak's wife's father's, I think, um, um, company and their, their involvement in visas. And, and it just, it's it's getting worse and worse and worse. And, and like I said before, it's not going to get better. Well, that's the thing, um, because here's something that, that I don't know whether you know, but as far as the UK um, government is concerned, on gov.uk, uh, they've got guidance on the work, on the subject of skilled worker visas uh, and shortage occupations. They basically say, if your job is on the list, you can be paid 80% of the job's usual going rate, which is obviously advantageous to people who are employers because they'll employ people for less money if they can get away with it. Carl? Yeah, I mean, completely right. And it's worth noting that the Migration Advisory Committee, which is the independent committee which helps formulate the, the metrics and the thresholds, um, has in its recent report recommended substantially reforming or even abolishing the shortage occupation list. Yeah. Um, it's, I think there's a clear recognition out there that it's not working the way it was intended and it is allowing employers to undercut, undercut going market rates and it is creating distortions. Yeah, no question at all. David, final one for you. Um, the other issue that's being raised now by um, people in the party is housing. You know, as long as you continue to keep saying that you're going to move people out of the migrant hotels, that's all fine and dandy. But where are you going to move them to and where are they going to go? Well, that's, the, that's, that's, that's one of the huge problems. I mean, I'm down in Cornwall, and don't forget as well, once the, the somebody actually goes, gets asylum, they no longer are the problem, as it were, of the government. The government doesn't have to house them. It's the local councils. Yeah. So areas where there are these migrant camps, when people do go through the system, and if they get asylum, it's the local area that has to actually house mm. them. So this is also a big problem for, for shortage in area, you know, local housing. Right. Um, and again, in Cornwall, certainly down here, it's one of the problems that we already have with other issues. But where there are lots and lots of asylum camps and things and, and, and hotels, you've got a big problem. Um, and it's, you know, I think we're just not seeing any results, any action, and it's every day there's a new farce. Um, and, you know, we could have another year of this. It's, it's terrifying, that their lack of, of, of grasp of, of immigration and illegal migration. Yeah. I mean, I, you do wonder, don't you, um, whether it's just... They're just hoping it's all going to stop and it's all going to just go away. And, I mean, if I'll give you a final word, Carl, I mean, it's just, it just seems as though they don't have a clue how to stop it. I mean, yeah, I mean, fundamentally there is perhaps a little bit of wishful thinking here, um, but there is more discussion over the levers they can pull now. Um, and they really have to. Just to come back to the point on housing there, the Centre for Policy Studies actually released a report on this yesterday looking at the housing deficit that's built up, um, partly because of underlying population growth. We just do need to build a lot more. But migration has contributed substantially to the, the deficit over the last decade. Uh, about 1.1 million extra homes we should have built for that reason alone. So if you don't pull your head out of the sand and start solving these broader problems, it intersects with so many other policy areas, housing, the economy, and social cohesion. Um, so we just can't afford to ignore it anymore. No. I wish that were true. Well, we haven't been ignoring it, but they still haven't done anything. Guys, thank you very much indeed. Carl Williams there from the Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, lawyer David Haig as well from the human rights area. Um, it does seem as though nobody knows what to do. I don't think um, it's as simple as to say that Rishi Sunak 
just wants to keep them here and doesn't really want to discourage them. I think they just don't really know what to do. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Don't go anywhere because I'm going to take calls coming up. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost uh, the national rate, but they'll be very well worth it. I'll also be exposing the shocking behaviour of pro-Hamas demonstrators in the capital this weekend. Don't miss a second of it. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. What a difference a day makes. This weekend, we saw all of the different shades of opinion in this country when it comes to conversations about the war in the Middle East. We saw a vile anti-Semite spouting poison on the London Overground Network, threatening to smack any Zionists, or in his words, child killers, that came anywhere near him. We saw yet another march for Palestine, where police were forced to protect Whitehall from breakaway thugs, where they arrested people for wearing headgear, proudly supporting Hamas, and where mass dispersal orders were required when the flares came out and protesters climbed all over our war memorials as they'd done the last time around. Then we saw the march against anti-Semitism attended by many people from this organisation, including Julie Hartley Brewer and Vanessa Feltz. We heard no anti-Palestine chanting. There was no need for a massive police operation because the crowds were good-natured, calm and in solidarity with Jewish communities around the world. It was far more representative of London and Great Britain than anything I've seen before since October the 7th. We also saw the tragic pictures come out of Israel. Little children bewildered and confused as they were reunited uh, with their families after seven weeks of being kept in the dark, underground, in Gaza. We saw four-year-old Abigail Idan, who did not yet know that she was an orphan. Her parents were butchered by Hamas on that terrible day. Shamefully, we also witnessed the way some in our media are attempting to show how the release of criminals in Israeli jails is somehow equivalent to taking innocent toddlers and pensioners into captivity. And then we saw what happens in Palestine when Hamas calls for justice. The terrorists hang two of their own men in a public execution and then cut the legs from one before removing the bodies from public view. All war is horrific, of course it is, but these are not two sides playing by the same rules. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is where we're going to take your calls, so do make those calls. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We will get to you uh, so we can hear from you and we can tell everybody else what you think. Uh, we've also got lots of your messages that have been coming in. Today, we asked you on social media why you think anti-Semitism still gets a free pass. I'm not sure that it's true that it gets a free pass, and certainly not from me, and certainly not from everyone. But Bo says, simple, period wants to hate more than they want to be loved. Period. Ed says, why is there no special category or protection for the natives of this country that have now been on the receiving end for decades? And Kim says, I think they ought to stick to the term racism. It packs a more powerful punch. Ultimately, that is what it is. Carlos says, um, it doesn't, meaning anti-Semitism does not get a free pass. In fact, it is fought against more than any other kind of discrimination. And Baron says, possibly because it's always existed for centuries because of incorrect stereotypes based on a few, not the many, and a lack of understanding. And it's always been accepted and tolerated. I think people are really confused about what's been going on and what people have seen, because at the end of the day, we've seen some terrible things over the course of the weekend. 
And when you saw, and we'll be speaking to Laura Dodsworth coming up in the next hour because she's going to join our panel uh, with a look ahead to some of the big stories coming up uh, tomorrow. But here's the thing. People at the march on Sunday were not disrespectful to anybody else. They did not spend their time having a go at Palestine. They did not spend their time trying to make sure uh, that they were more important than anybody else. They simply were marching in solidarity. And that's what it's called. And when you saw the flares on Saturday, uh, the people being sort of kettled by the police because they were once again threatening to get out of hand and march their way through uh, London, doing whatever they wanted, well, that's not tolerating anti-Semitism. That's not stopping it either. But what it should be done uh, is what was done with others. And that, I think, is what we need to see. And that's what I think most of you would want to see as well. 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll take loads of your calls coming up in the next hour. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay right where you are, though, because I'm going to tell you all about Extinction Rebellion's latest act of lunacy. And I'm going to reveal what Harry and Meghan's friend Omid Scobie said about the royal family in his crappy, sycophantic new book. Back in a flash. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Good evening. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Tonight, Harry and Meghan's mate bashes the royal family in his new book, and the Duke and Duchess predictably emerge unscathed. How surprising. Uh, Sadiq Khan blames Boris Johnson for lives lost in the pandemic by extending London officials from emergency Cobra meetings, and the humble pub in Northern Ireland has blown the Christmas ad competition out of the park. And don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Make that call. Uh, it'll just cost you what the national rate is. Now, if you've been out and about today, uh, you might have noticed the weather wasn't very nice. I certainly did. It was cold. It was wet. It was miserable. But it is the last few days of November, after all. And it isn't that surprising. You just get on with it, don't you? No, not if you're one of those mad eco-zealots who think every single day is a good one for a protest. Today... We heard from a new group of nutters. This lot call themselves Money Rebellion. Hmm. Presumably they're against money, cash or something. No, apparently they're against banks. They don't like them. To be honest, I don't like them much either. Never have. Not since they sent two men around to my house when I owed them five quid when I was a student. But these perpetually angry activists hate in a different kind of way, a destructive way. They decided it was a good idea to shut down some banks today. Why? Because they like destruction. They like posing as rebels, as if they're actually going to change anything. Well, I've got some news for you, bozos. All you did today was cause an awful lot of irritation and inconvenience to a lot of elderly people because they're the only people 
that use bank branches these days. You shut them down by supergluing the doors together. Brilliant. I hope you're proud of yourselves. But just remember this. No one can close down branches of banks faster than the banks themselves. And if any of you have got bank accounts with money in them, you're a load of hypocrites. So just bugger off. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And there's plenty uh, going on because the Sun front page uh, has got a big headline that says, Gone to VAR. Now, this is for one of those of you who don't uh, particularly like VAR, don't particularly like the way that football has been invaded by technology. Uh, according to the Sun, VAR, uh, which is the way that people now look at what's happened on the football pitch, stop the game, have another look, stop the game, have another look, and then get it wrong anyway. Uh, corners and free kicks are next on the list. Could be extended. Uh, yellow cards could be given for free kicks which are not taken properly. Fans are going to be absolutely beside themselves with rage. They're not going to be happy. Um, the other story they've got, which we'll be talking about later on uh, with our panel, um, is BGT one million for David. David Williams is said to have won over one million pounds in his Britain's Got Talent legal fight over leaked off-air remarks. We'll get into that a little bit later on. You know, of course, what happened. Uh, he was rather embarrassed by some of the things he said, uh, which he never thought were actually going to get out into the public eye, a bit like those COVID inquiry boffins, right? Uh, but there's been more rumble in the royal jungle as well, as biographer Omid Scobie's new book uh, is set to be released tomorrow. Endgame continues to make waves in the royal circle. It's accused Prince William of prioritising the monarchy over his own brother, while claiming that Kate is terrified of doing anything except smiling for photographers. We must remember, there's absolutely no involvement from the Sussexes. Deny, deny, deny. Obviously, they've got nothing to do with Obed Scobie. In fact, they're not even friends with him anymore. In fact, they've never met him. In fact, they don't even know who he is. And they don't have any idea where he got all of his information from. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. But joining me right now to get into the nitty-gritty details with me uh, is expert on the royals and biographer Ingrid Seward. Ingrid, a very good um, evening to you. Nice to see you. Um, Good Hard evening. to believe, really, some of this stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's being taken incredibly seriously by um, people who are studiers of the relationship between Harry and William. I mean, why wouldn't William put the monarchy ahead of his own brother? That's kind of his job, isn't it? Well, of course it is. I mean, this this book is, is uh, Scobie's perception or Scobie's opinion. I don't think it has uh, very, very... I think it has very, very little fact to it. I, in fact, I have yet to see any fact apart from... <laughs> really old stories. Yeah. Uh, for instance, this is just a really trivial little thing, but he talks about Charles being spoilt because he has uh, his, his toothpaste put on his toothbrush and his, and his uh, shoelaces aren't. Well, I think Stephen Barry wrote that 40 years ago. Right. Um, so I find that uh, I think the, this, this book is not to be taken seriously at all. And I'm 100% sure that... King Charles is, is certainly not going to read it or take it seriously. William might be a bit hurt because he comes into quite a battering and he would feel very protective of Catherine, who is accused of giggling and not, you know, only being happy when she's smiling for the cameras or an inability to do anything else other than smile at the cameras. Well, I've seen that girl abseiling down a mountain, rowing... Yeah. playing tennis, playing rugby. I mean, she's the most active Princess of Wales we've ever had and probably ever likely to have. So I really feel that what Scobie's saying is just really unpleasant and untrue stories 
to get publicity, which he has certainly got. Yeah, and I think the problem is that it looks like sour grapes, doesn't it? You know, because we've seen in the sort of, you know, the run-up to this book being published, lots of stories appearing in the papers uh, which appear to be from at least, at the very least, friends of um, or people close to the Sussexes, you know, suggesting there was a phone call of reproachment made, suggesting that there was kind of a possibility that they might come back for Christmas, talk of Harry looking for somewhere to stay here, almost as though that was kind of orchestrated in preparation for this kind of wham-bam, you know, no thank you, ma'am, as they would say. Well, I mean, it's, it's all those things are quite possible to have happened. It's not very... Harry might, you know, have wanted to come over for Christmas. I thoroughly doubt it, but, you, you, you know, maybe he did. And maybe he, is, he does want somewhere to stay here where he feels safe. I mean, these are stories that have been going around for some time, and I, I just think that if the Sussexes, uh, as they say, are not involved, why on earth... So they issue a personal statement saying we had absolutely nothing to do with this book and we do not agree with any of the opinions. They are purely the opinions of Omid Scobie. That would, you know, at least give them a bit, bit of ground. Well, it might do, but nobody would believe them, surely, after everything that's happened, because Omid Scobie kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I remember laughing my socks off when he claimed that he'd worked in Fleet Street and he knew what a terribly toxic environment was. It turned out he'd been on uh, a, a job on Mirror Online for about two and a half nanoseconds, you know. He doesn't know anything about the way Fleet Street works. He doesn't know anything about Royal Correspondence, uh, as you do, uh, and as many of your colleagues do, and as I do as well. And, I mean, this guy simply is a, a kind of merchant of tittle-tattle, um, and he publishes whatever he's told by Meghan Markle and her circle of friends, isn't he? Uh, no, I think that I think that there, I have to give Scobie one thing. I think he's pretty clever because nobody gets this kind of publicity for their books. But I mean, then he has to live with himself and the unpleasantness and the the untruths that he's actually printed. And I think that would be very very hard for most people to do. So it's just unpleasant. Nasty tittle tattle, and I think it really is not to be taken seriously. But it will be taken seriously, presumably, in the royal household, as you say. Um, if there were to be any kind of sign that there was going to be a thaw in relations, there won't be now. Well, I mean, I, I, I feel that you know, Charles will probably always, I mean, if you know, any father would probably want a rep, you know, a rapprochement with his son. But I think there's, there's so many barriers that are being put up. And all, also, uh, Charles is incredibly busy. Mm. And until he, he can see a bit of, you know, a bit of light in the darkness of this relationship, he, he's not going to go out of his way to keep trying to ring Harry. I mean, I just feel that it's... Uh, I think that as Scobie doesn't really... Also, he doesn't name anyone. Right. He doesn't even say... I mean, a palace source. Why on earth would anyone from Buckingham Palace talk to him now? Mm. I mean, it's just inconceivable. Yes. And, and I think... But it is his opinion, and he has certainly generated himself a huge amount of publicity. Yes, and, I mean, the book, I think, has already come out in Australia because they're ahead of time, basically, with us. Um, and an awful lot of the, the revelations that we're, we're learning are from people who have seen that book. But, I mean, it's a very thinly-veiled attack, isn't it? And, you know, as much as people say, well, you know, he's being even-handed in this and it's not anything that he's doing on behalf of anybody else, I mean, it's a bit like having some kind of ridiculous... Um, you know, former fiancé or something who won't shut up 
having left and gone <laughs> and having and having been quite happy to leave and go. And I could, I'm, I'm saying that about either either sex, by the way. Um, and they just won't stop whining. And that's what it sounds like. You're absolutely right. I think that's a really good description. He he won't stop whining. He he's incapable of pressing that stop button. Mm. But remember, he is doing this for a reason, and he's doing it to make money. And presumably, he will make money. Yeah. But at what cost? I mean, it's not a. It's it's just a horrible cost to make money by being so incredibly untruthful or unpleasant about yes. people and to people. Yes. And to go back. Uh, to some of the things that have been said, like, you know, you know, uh, William and Harry told Meghan and Kate that they should dress like Diana. I mean, that sounds ludicrous as well. Why would they say that? That's not a normal thing for anybody to say. Um, what did they say they wanted to dress like Diana? That's one of the accusations that's in the book, yeah. Um, that they wanted their respective wives to dress like Diana, you know. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. Why would they want anyone to dress like someone... You know, their mother, nobody would want their wives to dress like their mother. No, I know. You the know, whole thing is, is uh, ridiculous. I, and also, if you're going to say that, that somebody like Kate, all she can do is stand and, and look uh, smiling at the camera, I mean, that's pretty much Megan's profession, isn't it? Well, if Megan has a profession at all. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't really seem to have one, but she, 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 they both smile beautifully. And, um, I, I mean, yes, that is part of the job of being role is to smile for the camera, but um, if, if all Kate did was just smile at the camera, you, you, you could forgive Scobie for saying that, but no. she doesn't. She does a huge amount. And, in fact, I just am stunned at how much she does do. Yeah. Well, she's kind of the secret weapon um, for the royal family, isn't she? Because she's an amazing, um, confident woman. Uh, she's a mother... Um, she stands by William, but she's very much a, uh, an individual in her own right. Um, she's no shrinking violet, as you say. She's quite happy to abseil down a cliff or play tennis or have a go at hockey or something like that. And I just think that there is nobody in the world that would look at her and go, what's the point of Kate? Whereas you would certainly do that when you look at Meghan Markle. Well, I think you could be forgiven for doing that when you look at Meghan Markle, absolutely. And you could never say that about Kate. And, and no-one ever would, even if they didn't like her. You can't say she doesn't do anything because we're constantly seeing what she does, what she says, what she represents. Um, and um, she's. She, I think we're very lucky to have her, and I, I actually feel very sympathetic towards her. It must be most unpleasant for her just to, you know, to have to stay quiet while all these insults are being hurled at her. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And a lot of people have said to me that the possible reason why Harry may want to have some kind of bolt hole here in the UK is for tax purposes, because, of course, while he may not have to pay tax in Britain, um, he'll certainly be liable to pay tax in the United States if he stays there long enough to become a resident. Well, exactly. I mean, they're, they're punitive, the American taxes, but I've got a feeling that their companies are all offshore. I don't think they've been stupid about uh, putting their money in safe places. Yes. But Certainly yeah, but he's, that, still, that... but he's still an individual. He'll still have to pay some form of income tax. And in California, those are pretty high. Oh, very high. Um, so maybe... But then, I, I don't know. Perhaps um, he wouldn't have wanted to give up Frogmore if he, want, he was worried about tax. Uh, but then we, you know, we, we don't know exactly who persuaded him to give up mm. Frogmore or why he did. We don't really know the ins and outs of it, except what uh, what uh, Scobie chooses to tell us. I mean, it is a joke. I think this book is um, 
just unkind and mm. I, I, it really upsets me. Yeah, it's unnecessary. Ingrid, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ingrid Seawood there, uh, royal author and biographer, of course. We've got some um, comments for you as well. Uh, as senior royals are accused of briefing against each other in the latest explosive book by Omid Scobie, whose side are you on? Uh, Adrian says, I'm not on a side. The Harkles have no legitimate complaints. They should just go away and never darken the doors of any decent person ever again. Let them get proper jobs and support their family like everyone else does. Are you sure you're not on anybody's side? Sounds a bit, Adrian, like you're on William's side, to be honest. Um, Di says, the Prince and Princess of Wales, always, I will never forget or forgive Meghan's disrespectful uh, nature uh, to our beloved Queen with that curtsy. Yeah, who could forget that in that Netflix documentary? Leslie says, Prince and Princess of Wales, without question, Harry and his ex-yachting wife are deplorable. The last five years are filled with their lies, hypocrisy, jealousy, deviousness, bitterness and cruelty. Vile, evil couple. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt whose side you're on, Leslie. And Libby says, well, I can't stand liars. So there's my answer. It's a pretty resounding um, tick, I think, for the Prince and Princess of Wales. And I'm afraid this is the way it goes. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are going to find that an awful lot of people in this country, the majority, in fact, find them to be pretty odious, don't really want them back. She says she doesn't want to come back to Britain. He says he does. So where does that leave them? Who knows? Uh, we'll keep you updated, though, as soon as we know. And don't forget, you can make the call as well and get on. 0344 499 1000. We'll talk to some of you coming up very shortly. You're watching The Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Don't move a muscle, though, because coming up, I'll have more on how Sadiq Khan thinks he could have combated COVID. And we'll find out what happened at the march against anti-Semitism this weekend. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Before I speak to my glorious panel, let's take some of your calls. Uh, lots of you have been getting in touch, and so you can have your say here. Because what we do is we take your views and we augment them and we tell everybody else. You know what the phone number is. It's 0344 499 uh, let's, let's get straight to it. John's in West Lothian uh, on the COVID inquiry. Hi, John. Good evening, Mike. Good evening. Yeah. What would you like to say? Well, normally I think you're up about immigration, but uh, the <laughs> COVID thing is the, the talk of the day after having watched that strange little man from, from London yes. who just feels sorry for himself. Um, it is such a waste of money. I mean, the whole thing, they, I don't see how they can ever reach a conclusion. No. They're, they're spending millions on it, and all they're doing is blaming each other. I was right, Gov. You were wrong, Gov. You know, it's just going nowhere. Right. And the expense that you're talking about is for the London inquiry. But then you've got other inquiries going on in Scotland and Wales. And the Scottish one will be, is an absolute farce anyway, because the first minister said, who, the previous first minister said that she didn't keep any WhatsApp and she hasn't got any information to give. <laughs> this one says that he's given anything, but he forgot when, when he got the information to actually present it to London. So the whole thing is just a farce and we will never get the truth no. of what actually happened. And having spoken to a number of people in the health service over the period... Um, it's also, you know, if somebody had been tested for uh, COVID, the death was COVID. End yeah. of story, irrespective of what underlying problems that they, they were experiencing before that. Well, exactly. People forget that, you know, I think it was 2021, nobody died from flu in 2021 because they didn't count anybody dying from flu. Everybody died from COVID. Yeah, so as far as I'm concerned, I agree with you that you just... Knock it on the head. Yeah, absolutely right. Couldn't agree with you more. Fred's in pool. Uh, we'll talk some more about the COVID inquiry. Lord Dodsworth's here as well. Um, Fred's in pool on immigration requirements. Fred, what do you want to tell me? Yeah, hi, Mike. Thanks yeah. for taking my call. Not at all. What, what do you want to tell me? 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, what it is, uh, like your uh, guest earlier, uh, uh, the human rights lawyer... David yes, David Hay, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, uh, with people come over on, uh, I promise, uh, £40,000 a year on a promise of a job. What happens when they get here if that promise of a job doesn't turn out? Well, it's a very to good be question. A job. Yeah. What What happens to them then? Because because they bring over family members as well with yeah. them. Well, that's right. So do they end up with their on benefits with their dependents? Probably. With their family as dependents. Probably. And uh, yeah. So uh, how how does that work out? Right. Because it, it's just a promise. Well, it, it is. And also, as I said, it, we've discovered not... we've discovered this week that, that the government will allow employers to pay people eighty percent of the going rate for any particular job, which means that if there are people who are already here who can do the job, if you're an employer, you can pay somebody just eighty percent of that amount, and you're better off already. Yeah, exactly. Which doesn't yeah. seem very and, fair. If that job doesn't work out, then what happens then? Yeah. With the people that are already here. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you go to somewhere like Dubai and you have a job and then you lose that job and you're a foreign national, you leave the country. You're not allowed to stay. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that, that, should, that should be how it is here. Yeah, it? but it isn't, though. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm afraid. I know, yeah. I know, yeah. absolutely. Listen, good point. Uh, we'll look further into it. David's in North Derbyshire wants to talk about Israel and Hamas. David, very good evening to you. Yeah, my uncle was out in Palestine during the war, fighting the Nazis. Uh And um, back in, it was the 14th of May, I've just looked it up, 14th of May, 1948, that Britain handed over a portion, a portion of land to Israel. Yeah. Because at the time, there was 75% of Palestinians, that's including Christian Palestinians, Yeah against 6% of Jews living in that area. Uh Now, if you look, it's round about 7% of Jews as to... Well, sorry, I'm going There's 7 Jews to only 2 Palestinians in that area because after 48... They came from all... The Jews came from all around the world mm. to go to Israel to live. And but there's more Palestinians in Gaza than there are Jews in Israel, aren't there? Sorry? Isn't there more Palestinians in Gaza than there are Jews in Israel? Well, they've been pushed out. So they've you're talking about out. the actual area of Israel, which doesn't... You're actual, not including the Gaza no, Strip no, or the West I'm Bank. I'm not talking about the actual area of Israel. Right. Israel is a cancer because it's grown from a small area that they were given. Yes, but it's, it's, the, it's the only Jewish, and, and it's the only the Jewish country the in, Jewish a, in a... But hang on. It's the only Jewish country in that whole area. If you look at a map, it's an infinitesimally no. small part of what is all um, Arab land, basically. But if you look at how many Jews are in Britain and how many are in North America... Yeah. That's, um, they've, they've grown up there and then they decide 
that they'll take their families to live in Israel. Some people do, yeah. Israel can't Some people do. But, you know, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very special country for a lot of reasons. We're not going to get into the ins and outs of it now, but thank you for calling. Uh, we're going to do something else because we've got lots more to do. Christmas is not far away. Um, and there's nothing like gorging on a series of tear-jerking television adverts. But this year, the big-name brands have been gazumped by a pub in Northern Ireland which is going to please you, I think. I hope it is. But before we get to that, let's check out the billion-pound competition because, of course, you've got the usual sound bites of children asking knowingly idiotic questions about Santa. What does he have for his Christmas dinner? No one Mum, who gives presents to Santa? And there's always a fantasy Christmas party with very annoying people improbably dancing around with annoyingly silly food in their hands. But let me tell you, folks, some of these Christmas ads are just plain bonkers. I mean, what the hell is the eggnog at Morrison's HQ? Uh, and what's their Christmas offering? A bunch of oven gloves lip-syncing to nothing's going to stop us now. And clearly Lidl have also been on the brandy sauce. Their offering is as confusing as well. It's a tale of a raccoon rescuing a child's lost toy monkey before befriending a family dog. Oh, very fascinating, but why is it a raccoon? Nothing says Christmas like a giant North American rat. The cut-priced supermarket chain Aldi lives up to its stern Germanic roots with an ad dominated by talking fruit and veg, the least interesting part of anyone's Christmas dinner. We have ways of making you fart. Uh, over at Argos, they've turned the season of Goodwill into a creepy horror film featuring a dancing doll across between Chucky and Tess Daly from Strictly Strutting its rather peculiar stuff to Sheik's Le Freak. And as this special conceit is that singer Michael Bublé is their chief quality control officer. But a weirdly airbrushed Bublé doesn't seem to understand the words he's actually saying. I hear someone tried to push mackerel for Christmas dinner again this year. Berry. But then I also heard that brown butter and spiced dark rum are this year's food flavour trend. But hats off to Asda for coming up with this tagline, make this Christmas Christmas incredible. Proof positive that the whole Fandango was reverse engineered from some dopey ad agency exec stumbling back from lunch with a pissed up pun on incredible. My personal favourite is Cafe Nero. None of you counting down the sleeps until Christmas. A clearly psychotic woman is counting down the sleeps until the Cafe Nero Christmas menu starts. And this year's John Lewis, the self-anointed owners of the tear-jerking Christmas ad, have gone completely bonkers, swapping out their annual sob story for a truly weird tale about a munching Venus flytrap. But about that pub in Enniskillen, Charlie's Bar. Have a look at this. God knows what is hiding in those weak and drunken hearts. Guess he kissed the girls and made them There are no strangers, only friends you haven't met yet. You'll, you'll get this from your Irish heritage, won't you? Yeah. It's a great place, an Irish pub. In any part of the world, you can always find one. I'm delighted to say, um, Ella Williams here, Laura Dodsworth here, and Elliot Keck in the middle from Taxpayers Alliance. Welcome to all of you. Um, I know you might say, well, you went a bit over the top with all those Christmas ads, but 
I just think, I saw this at the weekend, and I just thought, how wonderful, simple, old guy goes to put some flowers on a grave and then walks down the street, nobody talks to him, nobody knows him, nobody sees him, he's kind of invisible, and then finally goes into the pub with a young couple and a dog, mm. and everything's fixed. Mm. Oh, you're just getting soft. I am. It's horrendously I corny. I like it. But in, a, but in a sort of genuine way. But it's way. a nice corny, though. Yeah, but anyone who's been in a, a bar like that in Enniskillen knows that there are people like that. There are also old guys who prop up the bar who you have to take turns talking to. Yes. They're so irritating. <laughs> so, you know, the reality of the of the Christmas smolts is always a bit less sort of baubly and shiny than yeah. it's portrayed. Uh, but in a world in which that kind of interaction is becoming less and less normal, yeah. I suppose I'll take the schmaltz if it means that more well, people do it. Well, that's it. I mean, because knowing as we do living in London, you know, it's hard to find an old-fashioned pub where mm. you can just walk in and find an old guy propping up the bar. You're more likely to find some bloke with a, with a bun you know, eating some avocado <laughs> and oh, some craft that. beers on, you know, display. <laughs> I love the old-fashioned pub. There's a simple learning from those ads. Dogs make everything better. Yeah. Raccoons make everything worse. Well, luckily, we yeah. don't even have raccoons in this country. I mean, they're American, <laughs> aren't they? Well, it looks like they're importing them for Christmas along with Venus flytraps. You know, somebody should do a PhD, um, I think, on the quality of Christmas ads being in direct connection to the moral fibre of a country. Yes. I do feel like Christmas ads have become very, very confused. And the reason why that pub one is nice, I mean, I think it's exactly the right kind of schmaltzy yeah. for Christmas. Yeah. All the best films are schmaltzy too, because Christmas is at its heart a reminder of life, whether you believe that's the life of Jesus or bringing a light into the midwinter darkness. It's about life, isn't yeah. it? And so it's about connections, love. And yes. that was really sweet. It was beautiful. It so. made me slightly excited about Christmas. I've go. got to pick you up on the German thing. That was really mean. Mine. And my dad was German. I'm half German. And let yeah, me tell let you, you Germans do good Christmas. I, no, they do. We do very good. Listen, we do I'm candles greatly, on I'm the tree. greatly in favour of Lots Germany. Of food. You will never hear a bad word said about Germany Great by biscuits. me. Great biscuits. The best Stalin. Christmas biscuits. Stalin, yeah. Leukuschen. Yeah. Absolutely. But I can still do the Viha Vase thing because it's just funny. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing it. But, I mean, Germany's a great country for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I know they do some of the best Christmas markets anybody does. But the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, being as it's Christmas, um, Harry Cole from The Sun put out a picture today. This, this, the Downing Street Christmas tree is now up. Mm. And I thought, and he's going, for heaven's sake, it's only November. And I know that all the stores have got the Christmas trees out. Um, you know, they've started draping the shard with Christmas decorations. But it does seem to be getting earlier every year, doesn't it? Well, I mean, who knows how much longer Zunet's going to be in there. Maybe they <laughs> want to get it out as quick well. as possible. You know, a bit like the wallpaper, you know, make sure you have the biggest and the best tree. I don't I, I don't have a problem with it going out early. I've already got mine out of plastic one out of the attic. Is it already out. up? Just for a bit of something really? in your life, yeah, to, you know... Is your life that barren? <laughs> well, it's just... got a child, for heaven's sake. I mean, you should be yeah, full of the joys of, of all spring of the, All of the baubles winter. are this far up the tree. I, I can't have anything at, at grab reach for him. No. But, no, there is, you know, the, the weather's rubbish. Everyone's on a bit of a downer. News is terrible. Yeah. Put up the tree. I, uh, Open a few presents. I have an American partner and, um, in, in, in their country. Uh, the tradition is always to put the tree up after... Thanksgiving. Well, so Thanksgiving. Lo and yeah. behold, uh, we've uh, put up the tree over the weekend. Uh, have you? Much to my mild chagrin, but it is actually quite nice having the lights on okay. uh, when it gets dark at sort of half three, four. So I think I can probably be one round. Apparently, talking of dogs, you can now get a dog-friendly Christmas tree that starts higher up. So if the dog runs around the bottom, it doesn't like knock it over and or 
you know, knock, knock a lot of pine needles off. That won't work for cats. They will find a That way. won't work for cats, no, or raccoons yeah. come to that. <laughs> um, apparently, I did ask this question earlier uh, of my producer, where the tree comes from. Apparently it comes from somewhere in the West Country, because I wasn't sure. Because in the old days, when I was a proper journalist and I used to work for the newspapers, you'd ask that question, and sometimes you'd find a story because you'd go, oh, it was donated by the King of Saudi Arabia. And you'd go, what? <laughs> really? Was it? No, no, it's not the Downing Street tree. It's always, an, it's always a British one. And it always goes up end of November. They turn the it's lights on. It's always worth checking, though. It's always up early. And, and it's, um, it's like a kind of a UK-wide competition for the best or the biggest tree. Yeah. Um, and also they do the competition for the wreath. It's nice. Well, this brings me to a very nice link because Steve Khan is famous for... Remember putting that awful tree once in Trafalgar Square, which he bought from somewhere, or it was donated from somewhere, it looked like somebody had set fire to it, and it was just like a burnt effigy of a tree. Yes. It had no greenery on it at all, and nothing at all. But he was down at the COVID inquiry today. Uh, I know you want to talk about this, Laura. Oh, um, yeah. Let's get stuck into Sadiq Khan, the man who says that if it hadn't been for um, his exclusion from all of the COBRA meetings, not so many people would have died. Oh, I love that you segued with a woeful Christmas tree because yes. it matches his woeful lamentations. Oh, he's awful, isn't he? inquiry. Actually, um, the sorts of things he's saying are deeply anger-inducing and frustrating mm. because they epitomise everything that's been wrong with the inquiry. It's all about feelings and it's not about facts. Right. You know, experts are given a very fawning, soft line of questioning. People are talking about how things made them feel. The inquiry should really be about facts. And... He talks about how he was winded and alarmed that he wasn't at Cobra meetings. To be honest, leaving Sadiq Khan off Cobra yeah. meetings was probably one of the best decisions that the UK government made. He was full of incorrect information throughout the inquiry. Yeah. Just in the green room earlier, I was talking to Ella. She was saying we were talking about Sadiq Khan and, and masks tonight on the show. And it reminded me of this incredible incredible misuse of made-up yeah. made stats yeah. um, in COVID when he said, he said in the media, and he shared an infographic, that if two people are both wearing face masks, it reduces the risk of transmission by, I think it was a whopping 70%. Right. And I actually interrogated that data with his right. office and the British Medical Association, and they told me it had been calculated, and it wasn't true. And I got to the bottom of it. It was basically plucked out of thin air by a, wait for it, Chinese epi epidemiologist. Of course. One example of many of when he gave completely correct information. So this is the quality of the COVID inquiry, which is never going to get to the real questions such as, did lockdown work? Yeah. Answer, no. What's the cost-benefit analysis of lockdown? More to the point, why didn't they ask yeah. at the time? What was the morality of locking down a whole country and schools and mandating vaccines, which never stopped transmission? And talking about morality, why was the ethics committee disbanded just as the pandemic right. got started. All the big questions are not being answered and they certainly won't be answered by I've got Sadiq Khan. What's the point of asking Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham to come on? Because yeah. we didn't learn anything from them at all. I think a big problem with devolution, um, putting aside its other, otherwise uh, yeah. merits and demerits, is that it has seemingly created yet another class of incredibly self-important yeah. politicians, of which I think Sadiq Khan is the... Um, uh, the ring bearer, he uh, he's talking about how if he was in these meetings, he would have saved lives. And it's just, it is quite extraordinary to think somebody could have an ego of that size, yeah. given his uh, less well, than impressive Who could forget the abundant. Mark Drakeford episode where he was taping off sections of Tesco's on the basis that it wasn't essential yeah. um, shopping? And then we're going, sorry? Yeah, well, Wells was like another planet um, during the pandemic. But that's, I mean, Burnham actually, throughout the questioning, raised a point about funding where he said, well, I, you know, which I think is a fair enough, a fair enough thing, which is that we supposedly have devolution. Then you have, um, you know, the government throughout the pandemic period 
completely forgot about the D word democracy, yeah. completely forgot about the normal ways in which things are supposed to run, emergency powers flying all over the place. And, you know, you know, Burnham did say, well, I, I, I was having this, had this relationship with business leaders, kind of knew what they needed and wasn't getting the communication from Westminster. That's, that's a fair enough criticism. But the problem with Khan, uh, Burnham as well, but in particular Khan, is that I don't think there would have been any difference in um, the approach to COVID if no. it had been in the COBRA meetings. If anything, it had been a, a faster and a longer lockdown. Yeah. And the well, idea that's all that, he ever did. The idea that Khan has, um, can take an accurate temperature check of Londoners is also a nonsense. We know that his kind of antics around the ULES and the way in which he has disregarded proper consultation of Londoners means that, I mean, he, he just does what he wants to yeah. do. Yeah, and all of his figures mm. that he produces turn out to be models or turn out to be fakes or estimates and all of that, so I'm not surprised that, that mm. those didn't. Let's just talk about a couple of other things before we go and have a look at the front pages and, and what's inside the papers. Um, Elliot, I want your view on this one. Birmingham, the council, one of many, uh, which is going bankrupt and, and no doubt others will join it. Uh, I was rather amused to see that they wasted £2.1 million on vehicles that don't comply with their own clean air zone for their net zero uh, scenario. Yeah, it adds to um, a botched uh, IT system that means the council isn't even, even sure who's paying uh, business rates and council tax, um, right. as well as uh, an extraordinary. Does that mean they uh, don't know if you've paid your council tax? Can well, you suppo suppo supposedly it? because they have because they have an in inadequate uh, IT system that uh, right. they tried to update uh, and that went horribly wrong. They right. don't have uh, exact records, uh, and that adds to this absolutely extraordinary um, uh, equality liabilities that they have and that they've known about actually for yeah. uh, decades now, and they haven't got to grips with. Uh, it is a council uh, which is beset by extraordinary. And how do they get out of this problem this they've now got? Because they can't just put people's council tax up, can they? Well, unfortunately, that is the record. Uh, councils that tend to go bankrupt, they right. get given uh, special exemptions, basically, when the local government finance estimates announced. I would expect Birmingham Council to be allowed to increase council tax by at least 10, if not 15%, uh, which is double or triple... Uh, what because of their ineptitude yeah, and profligacy. Well, this is the case. It's always taxpayers that pay. Always taxpayers that pay or service users that pay. And cut services. They'll cut, yeah, exactly. they'll cut non-essential non services. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is that, it, you know, that that money that they wasted on vehicles is mm. the tip of the iceberg. You yeah. know, you're talking about how they, um, they don't know what they've spent on things. They don't know how many... Um, car fines, ULES yeah, fines, yeah, CAS they call it in, yeah. in Birmingham, that they've, they've taken or not. Well, that IT system cost them £100 million and it was supposed to cost £19 million. Yeah. So what's awful is that, you know, we, the taxpayer, are paying for gross stupidity yeah. and financial ineptitude. And I have quite a lot of sympathy for the women who brought about the equal pay case because actually they were, they were funding an inept council mm. for years, but the council doesn't even have the money now to no. to pay for the unequal pay. It's a complete mess. One of maybe up to 30 councils which will go bankrupt. Yeah, something to look forward future. to in the new year. Sorry, Ella. <laughs> <laughs> to, keep, to keep the tree up all the way through the year. Um, here's some good news, though. New Zealand, you know, that country that went completely bananas and bonkers during COVID, appears to be coming back to its senses. They've now scrapped their, wor their world first, which is the banned smoking. They've now decided not to do it just as we've decided to copy them. Mm. So that, what does that tell you? That tells you Rishi Sunak's copying the wrong countries, isn't it? It's well, just... It's, sorry. No, I mean, he, that, that, as a somebody who loves a cigarette, this is, like, music to my ears, yeah. because you now can say to the UK government, right, there is literally no precedent for yeah. this. You are out on your own, and you're put in, putting in place a policy in which, in a number of years, you would have the insane situation 
of a 34-year-old yeah, being bonkers. told by a, not a serious shop, country. shop assistant, sorry, uh, ID, please, while the th- right. 35-year-old friend would be allowed. Yeah. So you'll have, like, 30-year-olds outside off-license yeah. being like, hello, sorry, 70-year-old, can you buy me a packet of fags? It's crazy. Even Bonk. better than that, there's now a precedent for a government saying, whoops, we've made a mistake here, apologies, so... No, that um, I like. Yeah, yeah. That could catch on. <laughs> yeah. Not. I, I just don't understand what... I don't understand a lot of the things that the Conservatives are doing at the moment. But Neither really, this is like... I, who is blackmailing Rishi Sunak into doing this? Because there is no support for this. There seems to be no political, you know, gains to be made from it. I just don't... I don't Maybe get he smoked it. as a kid and it stunted his growth. Well, the, well, the only thing you know, I can think of is that it's a selfish know. move for his kids. I mean, I just don't, as I, I don't get it. No. And, well, um, yeah. I think I think you have to understand that this kind of technocratic tinkering around the edges is absolutely symptomatic of the way that they lean on behavioural science, the the kind of paternalistic they know best policy making. The, well, exactly the sort of thing David Cameron yeah. was known for, so I expect we're going to see more of it. Mm. And the very idea that the government even knows what's good for us. If somebody wants to smoke and it's bad for them, it's really, it's really up it's to legal. them. It's legal. Get, get on with it. I mean, I'm not encouraging you to do it. I used to smoke, but I would never try and stop anybody else from doing it. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, though. You're about to find out what tomorrow's news is about today. So stay tuned. The panel's staying here. We'll bring you some great stories. We've got lots to do. See you right after this. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. The world of work. Now we were just talking about council in Birmingham. We all know a story about a Jobsworth council official going after someone for no good reason in the community just to prove they're in charge of you. Well, up in Fylde Council in the northwest of England, things have taken a turn for the worse. They're threatening to fine a 97-year-old pensioner for feeding the birds in her back garden, all because a nosy neighbour decided to complain about her. Now, the man that runs Fylde Council, Chief Executive Alan Oldfield, who earns nearly £100,000 a year, has given the green light to environmental department officials to threaten retired teacher Anne Sego with a £100 fine. They've even sent vans to patrol the street to see if pigeons are roosting on the roof. It's an absolute disgrace. The council should hang their heads in shame. Anne says she can't even bring herself to watch the birds in her garden anymore because she's so scared of getting a fine for what they call her anti-social behaviour. Meanwhile, the neighbour making the complaints bangs dustbin lids and plays loud music to scare the birds off. Surely this is wokery gone mad. And lives near Blackpool. Surely it's time for some illuminated thought. That was The World of Woke. The World of Woke. Now, I'm still with my panel. Elliot Whelan, of course, um, Elliot Keck and Laura Dosworth. Laura, let's talk about what happened on Sunday because uh, the march against anti-Semitism was very well attended, very well received, um, and the only two arrests were from people who weren't actually really on the march at all. Yeah, it was, it was huge. I mean, it's very difficult to judge when yeah. you're there how many people are there, but it felt very big. That's and, easy. Um, I can I... help you with that. If you're Black Lives Matter, it's at least a million. <laughs> uh, if you're uh, with the... Uh, let's rejoin. Uh, the European Union, it's two million. Um, and if you're anybody else, it's only about 10,000. If you're, if you're a lockdown protester, it's 500 anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a police officer on the day who told me he thought it was 120,000. The organisers on stage said 105,000. So they must have done the... Oh, hello, there I am. That's, um, that's my Israeli brother-in-law, actually. So he came along. There was, there was a 
well, there were 105,000 people there, but loads of us there from the October Declaration Gang, Alison Pearson, yeah. Toby Young and others. Loads of celebs, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish. It was one of the most good-natured, peaceful protests I've ever been on. Elliot just said it's his first ever protest. Yeah. And I said, yeah. boy, you have not seen a normal protest then. Yeah. But what was really um, lovely about it was that people didn't come out with any particular political mission. Right. This was very much just against anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I want to say why that is so needed. Uh. We can go back to your third caller yeah. just before you introduced us as the panel mm. for why it's so needed. So this is somebody who gave us some kind of geopolitical background to boundary drawing in yeah. Israel. And he thinks he's sounding very rational, very sensible, very politically informed. And then he said, Israel is a cancer. Yeah. Now that is exactly the kind of anti-Semitism that has been mm. rising yeah. since October the 7th and all these pro-Palestinian marches. And still marches. is rising. So people think they're saying something that's rational or critiquing the Israeli government, but actually there's this kind of underlying, deeply unpleasant Jew hatred. And it doesn't take much for it to bubble to the surface. I think it'd be fair to say that some is imported from people that just don't like Jews, but there's a homegrown problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's said that at different, different times of political unrest, the way Jewish people are treated is something of a barometer for the state of your society. And that's why this march was so important. Anti-Semitism has increased a thousand percent, over a thousand percent since the 7th mm. of October. So it was a fantastic day and yeah. um, great to see the British public do what they do best. Well, I must be admit, I said this... and liberal and tolerant and yeah. welcoming. I said this earlier, it was a much more kind of, you know, to me, representation of, of, of Britain and the way that Britain is than some of the other marches that we've seen uh, on, on successive Saturdays. But there was occasionally the odd fly in the ointment. Let's have a look at uh, this character who turned up on a, I think it was a Thameslink train, uh, to basically lecture everybody about Israel. You're an Israel supporter, Efti. Yes, sir. Broski. Wallahi, on the Holy Quran, I would actually smack you across your head. Bro, don't, don't be aggressive. My bro, listen, aggressive. you're a bunch of Israel supporters, all of you. Okay. And I'll say it to all of your cameras, yeah. I'm sorry, there are a bunch of killers right now, a bunch of child molesters. You get it? All of you. Take all of you, bro. And I mean, you'd have to say, Ella, that you meet characters like that on the train all the time. So he so happens to be mouthing off about anti-Semitism, which is a terrible thing that he's doing. But you see people like this all the time, and it's a shame now that the sort of the thuggish element of London has now suddenly joined that side, if you like. Yeah, well, the, uh, Daniel Menemy writes about this um, really well in um, A Letter on Liberty. He wrote on anti-Semitism recently, which is that the sort of... the issue of identity politics has brought about a sort of 21st century anti-Semitism yeah. that is particularly ugly. It's a sort of mix of... You've got the old sort of far-right kind of crowd, um, a sort of uh, Islamist mm. uh, section going into that, um, and then this kind of ugliness of left-wing identity cool politics, yeah. yeah, which mm. creates this kind of heady me mess in which anti-Semitism is sort of all right to express on, a, on public transport. But this, it hasn't, it, October the 7th has, I think, uh, catalyzed it. But this kind of stuff has been happening for quite a long time. I mean, I live down the road from Stamford Hill and Jewish schools there have had security guards for many, many yeah. years. There have been attacks on, you know, there was an attack in Oxford Street, I think it was around Christmas time last year. This kind of thing is becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. Um, so it's something that, it, that, actually the thing about the protests on the weekend was that unlike the vigils that have happened in sort of the weekends previously, where it was pretty much predominantly Jews yeah. on those vigils, um, small numbers, no kind of broader solidarity. The thing about 
this Sunday was that there were lots of non-Jews yeah. and that it was a it was it took the form of a protest. I think the other side have been unashamed from the start of making it a protest, of making it a very political thing. Um, obviously, the behaviour on uh, on the anti-anti-Semitism march was not comparable to the kind of stuff that goes on in the pro-Palestine marches. But I think it's right to come together and say this: our, yeah. their fight is our fight. Doesn't matter what, whether you're Jewish or not. Mm. This is something that everybody has to stand Absolutely. up against. A, um, a moment that really struck we've got, me. We've got to um, rush through the papers. I'm sorry to jump in, but we we haven't got to any yet. So we can't. I know that none of you are going to have much to say about going to too far. Uh, which is, of course, the football uh, ruling. But we can do. Uh, British, Britain's got talent. A million pounds for David Walliams, Elliot. Uh, apparently, he's won over uh, that amount of money in his talent in his case against Britain's Got Talent because they leaked his off-air remarks, which were a bit <gasps> off-colour. Remember that? Yeah, I can't say I have particularly strong views on David Walliams. Uh, Britain's Got Talent. Uh, it's not a show I regularly watch. But, really? Uh, what about? I mean, he's he's never struck me as um, as sort of one of the most Pleasant people in showbiz, it wasn't a but then uh, no, I, I didn't find it surprising. No, um, <laughs> I wasn't at all surprised. But then, to be honest, uh, I'm no, not sure that many people in showbiz yeah. uh, strike me particularly well. So, how <laughs> about Elon Musk? It's, it's a disgraceful thing to do, isn't it? Imagine if our off-air comments here were released. <laughs> I know. Never work again. You would never we? would. No, that's why you're here. Um, what about Elon Musk? He's on the front of the Financial Times in Israel. Now, this takes us back to the Israeli thing. A lot of people are going, "Why is Elon Musk in Israel?" Answer: Because he was accused of being anti-Semitic. And he's gone there to sort of protect his, um, uh, his business, I think, his, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, look, the, actually, I think this is quite important because there is a conversation about, um, about the future of that region and what happens yeah. if Israel flattens Gaza and questions of democracy and, you know, which is obviously absolutely... Um, Hamas is never going to be the future of any kind of democratic or liberal um, future in that region... On the other hand, if you have people like Musk, unaccountable sort of tech nutters, coming in and saying that he wants to help rebuild Gaza after the war, I mean, what does that mean? Is it just a celeb mouthing off or is it something more serious? Um, because... Well, Laura, you might want to defend well, him. I, well, you see, I, I mean, I'm both sides here, to be fair. I mean, I, I'm curious and open-minded about Musk and I have been since he took over X particularly. But he's made some um, judgments that I profoundly disagree with, yeah. such as freedom of speech, not freedom of reach, which yeah. is very dangerous, I think. But the problem is he's gone on his own, which I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't see this cynically. I think he is trying to do good work, but he's not some kind of knight or champion of yore. He's setting himself up as a techno-philosopher king. And it shouldn't be down to one person to save the world. You know, um, I hope he's there with a big team because X will have a responsibility and a role to play in any kind of geopolitical hotbed now and, and in the future. Yeah. Social absolutely. media is where is where battles are fought, not just in the real world. They happen they happen in our brains yeah. on social media. And a lot of people now. are very annoyed about the way that some anti-Semitism can spread, but we, we shouldn't get too caught up in all of that. Um, a couple of interesting stories, showbiz-wise. I know I'm not going to come to you, Elliot, for this <laughs> because you may not have heard of her. Grace Dent has apparently walked out of the I'm a Celebrity uh, Get Me Out of Here. I haven't mentioned this show uh, at, at all. Um, while this show is, uh, while it, since it started. Uh, but I'm only going to mention it now because she's a sort of... They say she's a MasterChef judge and she's left on medical grounds because she couldn't handle it. But the main reason I'm not that keen on her is she's a Guardian journalist and... Um, no, no, don't be sectarian, Mike. No, I'm not sectarian. I just don't like the Guardian. <laughs> um, it's not very well done and it's not very well put together and they're, they're hip hypocrites. She, this is the same woman who said that she... That anybody who goes into the... Uh, 
uh, jungle is is just a hypocritical money grabbing, you know, animal hating something or other. Yeah, they and always then, say that. And then she got offered some enough money. money and then she money. went in. And then she couldn't handle it, so now she's gone out. Did she keep the money? I mean, and what, how does that happen? I think that they work? must have some kind of clause where you keep the money as long as you stay in for the first sort of seven or eight days or something like that. The interesting thing is um, that obviously, you know, she, she looked gaunt, she doesn't look well. She has just lost her father a year ago, and, and you know, who knows what's going on in her head. But the, 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 it's quoted in quite a few of the papers that the way in which friends and commentators online knew that there was something wrong was because she didn't get involved in the big Brexit row that no. anybody who's been watching knows happened yes. between Fred and Nigel um, and previously with Nella and I think it was Danielle. So it's this kind of like, if you weren't able to muster the kind yes. of Remainer outrage, then mate, there's something really wrong with you. There must be you. something really wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I could get that. Front page of the Star, we don't do this one very often. Close encounters of the weird kind. It says here that if you've had a close encounter with an alien, uh, you may develop extraordinary psychic abilities. Anybody? Ever had a con uh, any kind of contact with an alien? No, but you know, there's, there's been a lot of interesting alien stuff in the news over the last few years. Don't, you know, don't shoot me, and I haven't developed any psychic abilities. <laughs> but no, there have. You what, know, you're saying there aren't aliens. There are, these, there are these Pentagon <laughs> hearings, you know, whether you... The Pentagon wh hearings, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever you think is going on or not, whether it's a psyop, whether it's real, whether these witnesses have got a, a, a factual or not, there's a lot going on. I can't help thinking that for some reason we're supposed to believe it's true. Don't know why. Yeah. I'm, but, I'm very open-minded about aliens. I have no idea if there are any. Um, and there may well be. That's kind of where I am. Well, who knows what's going on in, in the skies, but I do know that there's a, the kind of the propensity of sort of interest in this has gone beyond just the sort of E.T. on the front page, which is very cute. Um, it's, it's more about, you know, when we start using language like PSYOP and things like that, I start to think, God, where, what, what, where have we gone in the world where there's, you know, we're ranging from sort of <laughs> the, the hard end of 5G and flat earthism to the soft end of sort of believing ET's made a visit to your yeah. back garden. Well, I mean, the only cop on everyone. The only good news is, I guess, if they did exist and they were watching us, they'd go, "Why the heck would we want to ever go there? <laughs> yeah. They're all mad and insane, and none of them know how to run anything." So, you know, <laughs> let's just stay where we are. Uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, <laughs> guys. I mean, we haven't we haven't been able to do the top docs hundred thousand pound pay deal for the NHS, but they may or may not get it. Thanks to everybody. Uh, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow uh, at nine pm, only here on Talk TV. Good night. <laughs>